Sunday, March 29th, 2009, to our Institute, Rabbi Shalom Singer Shlita, Rosh Yeshiva, the Shmuz Shir, given by Rabbi Benzion Schaefer. People believe what they want to believe. A number of years ago, I was learning with a fellow who, a very bright young man, was in dental school at the time, not yet from then. And because it was close to Pesach, we were studying Chumash, and we were learning through the events, you see, it's Mitzrayim, etc. And at one point he said to me, as follows, he said, this stuff is great. The blood, the lice, the animals, the splitting of the sea. If God would show me one miracle, I would believe. I didn't comment at the time, but I believe that this person hit on a very basic tenet of most people's belief system. And that is, that if Hashem would show me a miracle, then either I would come to a total belief, or certainly would strengthen my belief, I would be a different person. And I believe that is not correct at all. That is patently false. And I'd like to prove it to you. Here is one very key observation. Hashem brought many, many Nisim in Mitzrayim. Yet the Mitzrayim did not, by and large, become Balichuva. You don't read about the Ur Sameach Mitzri branch. You don't read about the millions of Geirim who joined Tachas Kanfei As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. Throughout the entire ordeal, what you see is the Mitzrayim remained, by and large, steadfast, against Hashem, against Moshe Rabbeinu, rejecting everything. So if in fact miracles cause a person to believe, why is it that the Mitzrayim did not come to that sense of belief? And to really make this more, I guess to bring this question more into relief, I'd like to share with you one important observation that the Ramban says. The Ramban points out that Hashem is not in the miracle business. If you go to the circus, if it's Tuesday night, Wednesday night, or Thursday night, you'll see the performers out there doing their routine on stage. That's because they're in the business of performing. The Rabban Chumash explains to us Hashem is not in the circus business. Hashem is not in the performance business. One time in history, Hashem showed humanity His power, His shlita, His control over every facet of nature. That was this time period of Yisrael Mitzrayim. This was supposed to be a sign to the Jewish people, to the Mitzrayim, to the world at large. Hashem created the world maintains the world and orchestrates everything under the sun. So if in fact this was just that sign, and if in fact now today it's the bedrock of our Amuna system, how is it possible that the Mitzrim lived through it, experienced it, and didn't come to a sense of belief, didn't come to accept Hashem as the King, the Creator of the heavens and the earth? And I believe that that question is actually profound and very indicative of the entire concept called belief. And I'd like to spend a little time this evening focusing on a bit of a different tack than we normally take. But that tack is, what was it like to be a Mitzri, a Mitzrayim during the Makkas? And what I'd like to do is see if we can get a better understanding from the Egyptians' perspective <coughs> what was going on. So let's begin. Let's start with Dam. Now, as you know, Dam was not just a simple mock in the sense that some water turned to blood. All of the water in every single part of Mitzrayim turned into blood. Keep in mind, there was no running water as we have today. Now, granted, the Nile was fed into various different tributaries. 
but all water had to be gathered, so typically water was stored. So what that means in plain language is the Nile turned into blood, and all the tributaries turned into blood, but all of the water that was stored, whether it was water in a basket that was up in some barrel in the attic, some water that was gathered for a wash bin, wherever there was water gathered anywhere in Mitzrayim, instantly the moment Moshe Rabbeinu said it was to turn to blood, turned into blood. But the Medrash tells us that it went much further than that. It wasn't just water that was hidden away. It wasn't just water everywhere in Mitzrayim. If a Mitzri bit into an apple instead of fruit juice, it was blood. If a Mitzri tried to spit instead of spitting saliva, it was blood all over Mitzrayim. All of the water turned into blood. Now, the Sforno makes a very important point for us to understand. He says, the fish in the sea died. Dan b'yabasha me'or mesu, the Pesach tells us. The Sforno explains, why is it that the fish in the Nile and the fish in the rest of the rivers died? Because blood is not water with coloring added. Blood is thick, it's globulous, has a stench to it. The fish died because Hashem gave them gills to extract the oxygen from the water. The blood was too thick. The fish died because they suffocated, because it wasn't water turned red. It was thick, globulous, stench-filled blood that filled everywhere in Mitzrayim. Now I want you to imagine that your name is Muhammad, and you're standing next to your buddy Anwar, and you're having a conversation in the field. And Anwar says to you, Hey Muhammad, did you hear it? No, there was this tall, majestic Hebrew. He came into the to the palace. Nobody came into the palace. Nobody comes into the palace. No, no, I don't know how he came in, but he did. And he told Paro, he told him that there's going to be blood, all the water and all of Egypt's all going to turn into turn into blood. Oh, come on. No, no, no. He says he's got the super God. He's God above all gods who controls everything and he's going to change everything. Oh, come on. Do you believe that stuff? Lo and behold, on the appointed day, exactly at the moment when Moshe Rabbeinu said it was to happen, Muhammad standing there in the field as he witnesses the water turn into thick, globulous, stench-filled blood. He picks it up and it smells. And he reaches down into a barrel in his basement and it smells. And everywhere that was water is now blood. What is he thinking at that point? What is going through his senses as he experiences them? And let's sort of play it out for a minute. Imagine for a moment that Muhammad is there and he's watching Yitzhak. Remember the Medrash tells us that every one of the Makkas was the Makkah for the Jews, for the Mitzrim, but for the Jews was not so. So for instance, during the Makkah of Dam, any water that was gathered for the Mitzri was blood. A Jew would drink nice clear water. So imagine that you're Muhammad and you're standing there in a the field and there you're watching Yitzhak. Yitzhak picks up a glass of water and drinks it, pure, clear water. Come here, boy. Do that again. And Muhammad watches as Yitzhak drinks water. Give me that cup. And as Yitzhak gives the cup from his hand to Muhammad's hand, it turns from water into blood. Take it back. Back from blood into water. Water, blood, blood, water. Now that's rather unusual. That's rather astounding. Come here, boy. Sit right here. I want you to drink that cup. And as Muhammad watches, Yitzhak drinks water. Now I want you to hold that cup. And you're going to hold it up. We're going to drink at the same time. No tricks. Any tricks, I'm going to whip you. One, two, three. And as Yitzhak holds the cup, he drinks from his side water. And Muhammad drinks from his side blood. Spits out thick, 
blood from that very cup. What is going on in Muhammad's mind at that time? What is he thinking? In each Makkah was another manifestation of Hashem's control over every facet of nature. I've heard told that the Chavetz Chaim was once learning Chumash, and he started laughing. He was being Mavisedra, and he starts laughing. And someone said, and Shuldik covered the Rashiva, what does the Rashiva find so funny about Chumash? And Chavetz Chaim said, I'll tell you, I was just being Mavisedra, and I got up to Svardeha, and I was imagining Paru, big, fancy king, sitting on his throne. And the frogs were here, under his seat, around the seat, under his robe, here, there, dancing. Frogs, I started laughing, because it was very funny, imagining this pompous king, with the frogs jumping all around. There's a posseh that describes exactly that point. Hashem told the Klai Yisrael, I want you to pay careful attention, I'm going to play with the Mitzrayim. This was not a war of equals. Hashem was sending a message to the Mitzrayim that you're not my combatants, and we're not peers. Each of the Makkas was toying with the Mitzrayim. And if you pay attention to the Makkas, you'll see Kaviyochal Hashem almost, it seems, as a sense of humor, because many of the Makkas are literally funny. Because you see, especially in the beginning, the Makkas were not powerful, destructive forces but they were demonstrating Hashem's control over everything. And the Pesach describes the Mark of Svardeya. The Mark of Svardeya, the Pesach begins, Vayal HaSvardeya. The single frog came up from the Nile. The Medrash explains to us, it was rather a large frog that came up from the Nile and made a beeline straight for Paro's palace. At which point the guards saw this frog. They took their sticks and smashed the frog that frog split into two. The split parts, they took a stick, hit that, and that split. Hit, split, hit, split. Now folks, don't try this at home. But I guarantee if you go into the swamp, take a stick, smash a frog, you're going to get splat. Not hit, split, but hit, splat. Because frogs, when you hit them, go splat. That's what happens to frogs. Something rather unique and unusual is going on over here when you hit the frog and you get two frogs. So the stipe would go and ask the following question. The guards hit the frog in a split, hit, split, hit, split. After a while, didn't they say to themselves, hmm, something's going on over here. Now imagine that they did the math. Hit the frog, split, hit, split. After about eight routines, they should have gotten the idea that they're not winning this war. Why don't they just stop? You see, 64 frogs in a huge country like Mitzrayim is not a very great affliction. It's not much of a maka. Why didn't the Mitzrayim just stop when they got the picture? <clears throat> you hit it, it split, hit it, split, stop. And you could live with 64 frogs. And Stiple explained that these frogs were rather annoying. They'd crawl and climb. And you couldn't help but smack the darn annoying things. And every time it hit, it split, hit, split, hit, split, until you had billions and billions and billions of frogs throughout Mitzrayim, wherever you went. It's playing. Hashem was toying with them. But if you can imagine a room like this, filled with hundreds of thousands of frogs jumping everywhere, the Medrash explains to us the Mitzrayim didn't sleep at night. Because one bullfrog goes, ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. A hundred thousand bullfrogs going, ribbit, 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 is a cacophony that doesn't allow you to sleep. And they would climb in the shirt, under the shirt, in the pants, around the pants, get out of here, stupid split, hit, split, ah! 
The Medrash tells us that some of these frogs were what we call kamikazes, kamikaze frogs. And they would literally jump in the ovens or jump down the throats. Now again, in the real world, if a frog ever jumps down your throat, you'll probably note that within a short amount of time the frog will die. There's not much air in there, not much other than liquid, etc., and the frog will die. However, Hashem arranged for there to be a very clear cement to the Mitzrim. These frogs lasted the duration in the stomachs of the Mitzrim, ribbiting, ribbiting, ribbiting. The Gemara tells us that the Maka lasted seven days. Three weeks of warning, seven days of the Maka. There were seven days of blood and three weeks of warning, seven days of Sardaya, then additional warning. That means for days there were Mitzvah going around, ribbit, 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 from their innards, croaking, coming out. So let's imagine again that your name is Muhammad and you're there. And you've seen it all for three days now. The riveting, the riveting, the hit split is... And you're so furious. You're enraged. You haven't slept in days. And you're furious. And you get up on the third day. And you open your eyes from your groggy eyes. You get out of bed. And you look on a windowsill. And you see him. You go right. And he goes right. You go left. And he goes left. You go back. He comes forward. You go forward. He goes back. I'm being stalked by Kermit. And the frog stalking me. You are not getting down my throat. You're not, it's not going to happen to me. He's seen already what's happened when the frog goes down the throat, ribbits from inside for a day or so. Yeah, it's not going to happen to me. So, Muhammad's a tough guy. During breakfast, he just kind of eats like Jewish cars in mouth. All day long, he's kind of just gritting his teeth because that frog is not getting down his throat. But eventually, time wears on, and the frog, and the frog, you stupid dog! Ribbit, ribbit. Ribbit. And for the next four days, our Muhammad has got a croaker in his stomach going ribbit. What is going on in his brain? What is he thinking at that point? Does he get it? Does he understand? <coughs> Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Paro, when do you want this market to end? Lamachar, tomorrow. Paro thought there was some sort of astrology, some sort of control, that's why Moshe is coming now. Wait till tomorrow. Moshe Rabbeinu makes a mark on the wall. Tomorrow when the sun hits this point, when the next day when the sun hits that point, every frog in Mitzrayim dies. The huge Kol Rash Gadol stops and there's a powerful silence. And now there are piles and piles and piles. A huge Chamorim Chamorim of dead frogs. The stench was unbearable. And Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Paro's palace, day after day, for the next three weeks' morning, there's going to be another Makkah. And this one is Kinnim. Now, Kinnim, lice, doesn't sound so bad, right? Well, the lice, you know, this little kind of guy, little guy, and he just loves to dig his feet right into the pores. You know where your hair follicle grows? You just dig his feet right in. Now, one lice is a bit annoying. You just got to scratch it out. And that was not exactly what Kinnim was. Kinnim were lice everywhere you can imagine, from head to toe, the mitzvah were covered. Every piece of furniture, everywhere they'd sit, everything was covered with teeming lice that just wouldn't allow them to do anything but scratch and constantly move. Now, no one dies from lice. No one <coughs> stopped breathing because of lice. But it's so annoying that the Khartoumim, the big <coughs> sorcerers, could not show up to power because they were scratching all day long. They couldn't stand in his presence. Interestingly enough, the Gemara tells us 
a very interesting thing happened during this Makkah. There were many <coughs> debates over the land of Mitzrayim. Where did the borders end? This Makkah determined exactly the boundaries of Mitzrayim. Why? Because all of the offer in Mitzrayim turned into Kinim. Not just that there was lice wherever you went, but the dirt itself, if you dug down three tzvachim, some nine inches deep was no longer dirt, but with these lice, crawling, creeping things, but that was only in Mitzrayim. If that land was not Mitzrayim's land, it remained dirt. If it was Mitzrayim's, it turned into Kinim. Goshen did not have any of this. And you could see the boundaries of Mitzrayim cut out like a laser based on that criteria. If it was Mitzrayim, it turned into Kinim. If not, it remained dirt. What were the Mitzrayim thinking during these Makkahs? What was going on in their mind? Didn't they all say to themselves, I get it. Hashem, who will Kim? And the Makkahs go on one after another. And I want to correct a common fallacy here. It is not until after the fifth Makkah that you hear the words Hechpadati as Leif Paro. Only after the fifth Makkah, Hashem says, I hardened Paro's heart. Up until that point, it was total equilibrium, total free will. And the Surah explains to us, even when the Pasuk says, Hechpadati as Libo, I made hard his heart, the Surah explains what was happening was, the Yad Hashem was so clear, there was such a powerful demonstration of Hashem's total control over every part of nature that Paro lost free will. He lost his free will the other way. He would have let the clients roll out of Mitzrayim because Kaviyachal was like Hashem's boot was directly crushing him down. He had no choice. But it wasn't because he truly accepted Hashem's sovereignty and did tshuva. Therefore, Hashem says, I hardened his heart to bring him back to the equilibrium point where he again now has free will. But there was never a point where Paro or the Mitzrim lost their ability to choose, lost their ability to recognize the truth. Every step of the way was their understanding, their decision, and they lived through this. Dam Sardeya Kinim Orov. What's Orov? Wild beast. Doesn't sound so bad. A couple of, I don't know, some lions, and lions tigers, and bears, right? <clears throat> well, the Lord tells us what actually happened was legions, legions of mixed multitudes of wild animals began attacking Mitzrayim, killing in the streets. See, now already the Makkas were beginning to get a bit more tough. There was a bite to them. And if you can imagine what it was like walking in the street when you had, again, these lions and tigers and bears who were attacking the Mitzrayim. If you were Jewish, you remained untouched. If you were Jewish, you were able to walk in the street with impunity. Imagine that you're walking the street. Hey, kitty, 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 what a nice Siberian tiger. Oh, see, Anwar over there, sick him, get him! And he jumps on Anwar because you said so. What was the Mitzrayim thinking at this point? What was going on in his mind? Each of the Maka becomes a more increasing demonstration of Hashem's control. Each Maka begins intensifying both in the demonstration of Hashem's Shlita as well as the power of the Makkah. Each Makkah lasted about a month. Mitzrayim was an agricultural society. After about the fifth Makkah, work ceased. Remember, what you did there was work in the fields. The animals died, the crops were ruined, there was nothing to do but think. Day after day, week after week, the Mitzrayim were able to watch 
do nothing other than contemplate what they were experiencing, literally for months, because each maka lasts about a month, and there are ten makas, we're talking close to ten months, the experience that they were living through. And each one, despite its obviousness, despite its clarity, did not move the mitzvah to tshuva. Let's deal with one quick observation about borrowed. And what was borrowed? Now, I always had a tough time. We do the makas at my table. My kids are little. We do the makas. We try to make it creative and envision different ways that the kids could experience it. So blood is rather easy, right? You take Kool-Aid, put it in the water. Everyone's got it. That one's a no-brainer. So right there, we have every imaginable frog you could ever see or imagine hanging from the chandeliers, from the table. No problem. Shane even I found these uh, little things that you put on your hand. How do you do borrowed? How do you do borrowed? I went to a Gentile fellow who owned a magic shop when I was working on the makas and he said, I got it. Here's what you got to do. You take a red balloon, put it on the tap, fill it with water, tie it. Then put the green balloon, stretch the green balloon over it. Now, once you have the two balloons, fill the red balloon fully with water, then more water over the green balloon, tie the two, put them in the freezer. Okay? Once it's frozen, take a knife and you peel off the green balloon. You have a ball of ice. Inside the ball of ice is a nice little red fire. Why? Because borrowed was exactly that. Borrowed was a softball-sized block of ice inside of which was fire. Now Rashi asks a very powerful question. How could fire be contained within the ice? The Pesach tells us that the ice would fall down, break open, and the fire within it would burn that which was remaining in the field. But Rashi is bothered by the problem. Either the water extinguishes the fire, or the fire causes the water to evaporate, but ice and fire cannot coexist. Rashi says the answer, also shalom, they made peace. They made peace. <laughs> now I get that. They made peace. Oh, okay. I had a kasha, how could it exist? The answer is also shalom. But if you're a Mitzri and you see it come crashing down exactly as Moshe said, not a little tinkling, you know, when you're driving in the summer and you hear a little tinkling of the hail, oh, it's so cute. Smashing down, breaking trees, breaking every animal that's alive in the field being killed there, and then opening up and the fire emerging, what is going on in your mind when you're experiencing this? Month after month, nothing. Until the final Makkah. By the tenth Makkah, many Mitzrim began getting it. L'cholapachos, at least the Bechoros. And the Bechoros came to Paro, and they said, this is insanity. Every word that Moshe said was going to happen, happened exactly as he said it would. He's now said that every firstborn male child in Mitzrayim will die. He means it. We're the firstborn. Let him go. Paro said no. At which point, the Medrash tells us there was an armed rebellion. The firstborn of the Mitzrim rebelled against the king. The king mounted his forces. There was a civil war. Paro put down the rebellion and in fact remained steadfast. He would not let the Jewish people go. And the Pesach tells us by he, it was approximately midnight. Moshe Rina said there's going to be a Magifa. And that night, exactly at the stroke of 12, there was not a house in Mitzrayim that didn't have a dead person in it. But you have to hear the details to appreciate what was going on. If there was a Bukhar in that house, imagine you had a fellow who was 18 years of age, 
he was a rather small fellow. His 16-year-old brother was strapping, husky, and much bigger than his 18-year-old brother. Don't worry about it, the Bukhar, the firstborn, died. If there was no Bukhar in that house, typically there were nuclear families, they had uncles, etc. The oldest male in the family died. Imagine if two uncles will use American names for this part. Uncle Bob and Uncle Frank. Uncle Bob is 82. Uncle Frank is 84. Guess who died? You got it, the older one. Who's counting? Who's making the cheshben? Barashi makes a very important point. It's not just that ain bias or shain shamesh, that there was no house without a death. Says Rashi, there were many houses in which more than one child died. In fact, Rashi says there were some houses where five children died. Why? Because he explains that it went after the father. The mystery women were promiscuous. You might have a house where a woman had an affair. She might have had one child from her husband, another firstborn from another person. In her house, two boys died because they were both Bukhars. Rashi tells us there were some houses where five children died. Now I want you to appreciate what that means. Cleopatra wakes up in the morning and sees five of her children dead. One was 25 years of age, one was 20, one was 15, one was 10, and one was 5. And she says to herself, oh my goodness, 25 years ago I met somebody, no one knew about it. It was absolutely the best held secret in the world. Five years after that, a different person, no one knew. Five years after that, five years after that. Would you like to know what Cleopatra saw right in front of her eyes? That when she thought she was alone, she was not alone. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu fills every particle of physicality. And fills every part of this world. She experienced that because she saw right in front of her eyes that someone was watching, counting, reminding her later of exactly what happened. Now could you imagine if we got to witness Cleopatra going to the cemetery, burying her five children, and afterwards saying to her friends, girls, listen to me, I just buried five of my children. Girls, you've got to be so careful. Promise me you'll watch your diet. Promise me no red meat, please. Look, five of my children just died. Be careful, guys. Please, okay. Lady, you, you playing with a full deck? It has nothing to do with cholesterol, <laughs> nothing to do with heart attacks. Moshe Rabbeinu said, at the stroke of midnight, your children will die. Every one of them died, and every Mitzri in Mitzrayim saw that. But at that point, even then, they understood that they were in grave danger. They ran to Paro and said, get them out of here, because Kulanu Mason, the entire Mitzrayim, is going to die. But do you know that even then, they didn't get it, that it's Hashem, who is the creator and one who maintains every part of the Bria. And if you're not sure that I'm right, watch what happens a mere six days and maybe really only three days after that. And the Klai Yisrael leaves Biyad Rama with a beautiful, glorious exit. The Anne covered. Clouds of glory escort them. In front of them is Anne Ish, a powerful, powerful pillar of flame that lights up the night as if it's day, but it's actually not a flame, it's actually a cloud, and that's in front of them, surrounding them on the sides, surrounding in each direction of these Annanim, to make it climate controlled, to carefully make the carpet bed of the Midbar nice and smooth for them, directing them exactly where to go. 
as soon as they leave, Paro sends out spies, watch them, see where they end up. In fact, at a certain point, the Anekovid takes them in the wrong direction. It looks like they're circling back on their own tracks. <coughs> the spies come back to Mitzrayim and <coughs> tell Paro they're lost. Midbar, they're lost in the Midbar at which point Paro goes let's go follow them and he himself leads the charge when he and his chariots and his men remaining follow the Jews into the Midbar and you have to appreciate the scene as Paro with his legion of chariots attack and as they get close the Kleinsol is camped out against the Yam their back is against the sea and the Anan Eish goes from behind them all the way to the front so that it interrupts between the Mitzrim and the Jews. The next time you're at 35,000 feet and you look at it, there's little clouds, oh that's so cute, as the plane cuts through them like they're clouds and say to yourself, aha, clouds are clouds. How does a cloud stop the Mitzrim charge but the Mitzrim charge and this Anan stopped them dead in the tracks and they couldn't penetrate. What did the Mitzrim say at that point? I get it. Hashem is fighting the battles? No. What they did was they started shooting arrows. That didn't work. They started shooting fire arrows. That didn't work. The entire night they stood there attempting to get through this cloud. And the key to this whole puzzle is something that the Ramban tells us. The Rambam makes a diuk in the Pesach that Hashem split the Yam Beruach Kodim Aza Kolalayla Hashem split the sea with an eastern wind a powerful eastern wind that blew that entire night and the Rambam explains to us how it actually was enacted he says there was a wind that began blowing first you could just feel it just sort of sweeping across the sea you could feel a wind and as the night went on that wind became stronger and stronger until you could sort of see ferrets, sort of like little ditches cut out in the sea. And as the night wore on, those ditches became deeper and deeper and deeper until towards morning you had 12 distinct channels cut in the yam. Now, if you do the math, there were 600,000 men between the age of 20 and 60, add the women, add the children under 20, Add the adults over 60, you have approximately 3 million people. If you divide 3 million by 12, you'll understand that these channels were not these little alleyways. It was a wide swath, a very wide channel. 12 separate channels cut into the yam. And not just cut into the yam, but as you know, the yam is murky and very <coughs> mire. It was smoothed out. And if you could imagine all the way from the bottom way up, a huge wall straight up from floor to bottom, the Jews and the Mitzrim all witnessed this. And at a certain point, the Anan allowed the Jews to enter the Yam. The Ramban is bothered by the question. He says, why did Hashem split the sea specifically with an eastern wind? Explains the Ramban, Hashem did that with one intention in mind to give them that to which to be told on. Hashem wanted to give them something to hang their hats on so that they could say it wasn't Hashem, it was the eastern wind. See, it wasn't God fighting their battles, it was the wind that split the sea. Says Ramban, even though the wind can't split the sea and certainly not into 12 parts, even that we didn't delve into, 
Mahmas rove to Vasam because they had a tremendous desire to hurt the Jewish people. They witnessed it, they saw it, they stood there waiting at the gate and the Jews got into the Yam, they began crossing the Yam. When the Jews were about the midpoint, the Anan Ish which had been blocking them lifted up. The Mitzram saw the entire array. The Jewish people split into twelve separate sections. They saw the Yam split and what was that that they said? They said the words charge and they charged right into the Yam and it wasn't until the last Jew got out when the Mitzram were about the midpoint that the Yam came down crashing killing the remaining Mitzram soldiers. And here's the question. Are we dealing with intelligent, rational thinking people. If we are, then I think the question that we have to ask is what was going on from ear to ear? What were they thinking? What was going on in their brain? And I think the Ramban is telling us a tremendous episode. And that concept is that belief is not logical. Belief is not something that's mathematical. You just add up the pieces and reach conclusions. Belief is a hundred percent subjective a person believes exactly what he wants to believe. And you can bring him all the indications in the world to the contrary. It doesn't matter. Don't mar my thinking with the thoughts of facts. Don't block what I understand with facts. I know it. I understand it. And the Mitzrim understood exactly what they wanted to. They believed what they wanted to because that is the human. And if that sounds strange to you, I'll share with you something very compelling. We see an example of that in our current day to an extent that's probably even more extreme. And the Rishonim tell us that the greatest, most guaranteed way for a person to see Hashem is to study nature. I've said it before, I believe it bears repeating, biology should be renamed Emuno 101, chemistry Emuno 102, physics Emuno 103, because when you see the systems, the harmonious integrated parts, you see the wisdom and each page deeper and deeper and each generation discovering more and each year making new discoveries within the discoveries you see such manifest wisdom that it is beyond the human imagination. What you see is the see Hashem. And you can have learned professors of biology, chemistry, quantum physics describing you the minutiae describing you the details, describing a single cell in the human body that is far more complex than any machine, than any human being ever could invent. And as they're describing it, they say the words, amazing how adaptation just brought this all into being. Amazing how it evolved. One lucky roll of the cosmic dice and boom, a hundred billion galaxies each one containing a hundred billion stars and gravity and electricity and all the laws of physics and all the symmetry and even the protein, even DNA. Everything just came into being. Wow, aren't we lucky? Uh -huh. Sir, are you rational? Are you sane? Are you playing with a full deck? And if you study the details, open any biology book and study the phenomenal details, then you have to say to yourself, what are you thinking? You know, I, I got a chance to experience this up front and personal. My daughter Racheli was born on Yom Kippur. And we, as a family, we were already a couple of kids and the kids were a little bit older. So we went through with sort of a, as the child was forming, we took out a CD called The Nine Month Miracle 
which showed pictures in the womb of the fetus developing throughout the very stages. You could see the stage when the, when the face begins forming. You could see the eye sockets forming. You could see the buds of the arms and the legs. And it, beautiful, beautiful pictures. And we sort of made it a family project to study the development of our unborn child. And for us as a family, it was a tremendous chizik in Amuna. And I have to tell you, Racheli was born, ironically enough, on Yom Kippur. We made all the plans, the money, the taxi, the whole nine yards. Bottom line is, it was so rushed, so late. The taxi says, I'll be there in 20 minutes. I said, don't bother. I got my wife in the car. I said, we're going. And I drove my wife on Yom Kippur to the hospital. Very shortly after getting there, she gave birth to a healthy, young little baby. Now, I guess it was Yom Kippur. I was fasting, and I was maybe a tad too exuberant, and I guess I used the word miracle, or thank God, a bit too, too much energy. At which point the nurse said to me, isn't it amazing how things evolved? <laughs> I didn't say it then, but I want to say, lady, what do you say? You're the person who catches the newborn. Can you see the development from the single lar largest cell known to man, which is about the size of a period, that's the egg. The sperm is 100 times smaller. From that comes 10 trillion cells, each one knowing exactly what to do, each one knowing whether to be the pancreas, become the liver, develop these most intricate systems, each one somehow within the confines of the mother's womb developing. And the moment of birth, how does the woman know to give birth? Because when the baby's ready, the baby sends out a hormone which excites the mother's system and then allows the entire process. And if you've ever studied the process, the involvement of all of the pieces is beyond description. Isn't it amazing how things evolved? What I got to see very clearly is exactly what the Ramban is telling us. You could stare at the ball of the sun and say it doesn't exist. And the reason for that is because that's the way Hashem made the human. You see, free will is a very, very elusive thing. When Hashem created the human, Hashem wanted to give us really free will. But the problem with free will is that any thinking, intelligent person sees a creator, intelligent demands that the Bori Olam, how could you have free will? And the Rishonim explained to us that free will is not so simple. Because if you can imagine free will in a real sense, it's in fact almost an impossibility. And I'll give you an example that I mentioned previously. Imagine that I ask you guys, do you have free will to put your hand in a fire? Imagine I offer you $100 to put your hand in a fire. Do you have free will to do it? So the answer is, uh, I don't even free will to do it. Of course I have free will. But no one in their right mind would put their hand in a fire for $100 or $1,000. So in theory, you have free will. But practically you don't, because it's dumb, it's stupid, and no one would do it. You take the human, the brilliant, most intelligent creation, the handcraft of a Baruch Hu, put him on the planet, how could he have free will to deny the existence of Hashem? To allow for real free will, not in theory, but in practice, Hashem gave us this powerful sense of imagination. This koach hadimion, which allows me to imagine and envision and see things exactly as I want to. If you'd like to understand the Mitzrayim and Mitzrayim, they had a powerful sense of imagination. There are many gods, there's Zeus, there's Mercury, there's the Tala, the Lamb, that's our God. There's this other super God, our God against your God. 
throughout every one of the matzahs, no matter how clear it was, it didn't matter, I don't want to believe, I'm not interested in believing, I will not accept it. Don't bog me down with the facts. And if you're not sure that the Ramban has got it exactly right, study science, study the world out there today, where many, many very educated people will make the exact same claim about that which the Rishonim tell us is the greatest proof to Hashem. Because you could stare at it, and if you don't want to believe, you don't have to. And I believe that that's really the answer to my friend's comment many years earlier. If Hashem would show me one miracle, I believe, uh-uh, it ain't true at all. Hashem shows you many miracles on a daily basis, and not one of them brings you to Amunah. If you're interested in one thing, you'll come to a tremendous sense of Amunah. The Vulcanan tells us the real mitzvah of Amunah is not to believe. How could you command somebody to believe? The real mitzvah of Amunah, says Vulcanan, is put away your agenda. Put away your biases. Forget the what if. If I accept Hashem, then this. If I forget that. Ask yourself, what does your mind I see? That is the mitzvah of Amunah. Now, you may say to me, this is all very nice. But I'm not a mystery. And I'm also not a person who's not from. So, this is an interesting concept. This has got nothing to do with me. I accept Hashem. I accept Hashem as the creator. I want to create the world, runs the world. So I got none of these problems. What's, what's this got to do with me? So I believe, and actually this concept has a lot to do with us. And I'll explain to you why. Many, many people are religious as they are baseball fans. I'll explain to you what I mean. Ask a fellow who grew up in Brooklyn, who do you root for? Ah, the Yankees, yeah, the Yankees. Oh, okay. Would you mind telling me why are you a Yankee fan? Why am I a Yankee fan? All my friends growing up were Yankee fans. My uncles were Yankee fans. Every kid in the yeshiva, we're all Yankee fans. What kind of question? I got that, but why are you a Yankee fan? I don't know why, just because everybody is. And I dare say, if you ask many people, why do you believe, why do you believe in Hashem? What do you mean, why do I believe in Hashem? Because I do. No, but why? Because everybody does. Because like, my uncle did, does, and my, my brother did, and all the kids in Yeshiva did. Everybody does, right? I mean, I'm supposed to, right? I mean, it's like the right thing to do, right? That's, that's why, right? <clears throat> well, I don't quite think that's accurate. The Ramban tells us the tachlis of all mitzvahs, the purpose of kol ha is so that a person should know Hashem. Not in theory, not as in, I'm a Yankee fan, I'm not sure why, but I am. I believe in God because God's good and, and I'm good and that's a good thing to do. But to know Hashem, to understand that it's impossible any other way, to see Hashem, to fully, fully be margishit. That, says Ramban, is the purpose of all the mitzvahs. And as a matter of fact, what's interesting to note is that there are 19 separate mitzvahs that surround Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim remembering Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And if you look in the Rabban and Chumash, he explains to us, if you do the count, we have mezuzah, and we have Krishma twice a day, we have Kiddush, Zechel, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, we have Tefillin, we have Sukkah, we have Pesach, Matzah, Morah, so many mitzvahs, 19 separate mitzvahs surrounding Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. The Rabban explains why, because living through this time period, living through the Seder, living through the eight days of Pesach, are supposed to be experiential. We're supposed to see what it was like living then. We're supposed to experience the Makkahs, and we're supposed to experience HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And if you say, but I wasn't born then, what you have to do is open your heart and allow yourself to know 
that which intuitively, instinctively you know deep down within your heart. You have to put away your argumentative nature. Put away your need to just argue and ask yourself, what does my mind's eye tell me? What do I see when I look at a sunrise, when I look at a sunset, when I study a flower, when I look at an amoeba under a microscope, what do I see? You see Hashem, and so too Hashem coated every Jewish heart with full, powerful amuna, but you need constant chizik. Pesach surrounds exactly the concept. It's supposed to be an eight-day activity of growing in amuna, growing, knowing fully, and being margishit, feeling it. But it requires focus, and it requires thinking about it, and it requires preparation. I think it is incumbent upon us to spend time before Pesach studying Chumash. Studying Chumash means going through Pesach by Pesach, trying to understand what happened during the Makas, trying to understand exactly the details, because Chayav Adam Liris Asma means I'm obligated to see myself as if I lived through what I mean, see myself, I wasn't there. But Hashem gives us the ability, if you want to, if you want to be there, you can. But you have to prepare, you have to get ready, you have to focus, you have to understand, and you have to spend time. If a person does it, it's a very, very different Pesach. It's a very, very different life that they live. I think there's a tremendous lesson to learn from the Mitzrim. You could see miracle upon miracle, the greatest revelation in history of man's hand. Hashem showing himself. As Ramban says, Hashem is not in the miracle business. One time in history Hashem showed His hand to be the bedrock of the Munah forever. The Mitzvah lived through that and weren't moved. Not Dam, not Swadeh, not Kinim, nothing moved them. Why? Because they did not want to believe. If you're not interested in believing, nothing will change your mind. You can't handcuff a person's mind to a given belief system. But Rav tells us there's only one thing that will bring a person to Muna. Put away your bias, put away your agenda, ask myself, what do I honestly see? What do I perceive? And then, if you do that, you'll come to Amunah. And that, says Ramban, is the mitzvah of Amunah. Our job as we prepare for Pesach is exactly this. To focus on this, to understand it, so that we fully, fully feel it. So we sense Hashem right there, so that I dive in a very different Shemona Esrei, so that I live a very different life. Let me close with one last observation. And that last observation is as follows. <coughs> It used to be, when they began writing software programs, that they were measured in hours. How many hours does it take you to write a software program? The problem is that software programs became so advanced and so complex that they no longer could be measured in hours, but began being measured in years. As in, how many man years does it take to write that program? You have a team of ten men, it takes a year, it's ten man years to write that program. Microsoft Word, at a certain point, was dealing with the hundreds of hours. Now it's in the thousands of hours to write particularly sophisticated software programs. Internet Explorer was also up there in the literally hundreds of man years. Okay. Now, why is this of interest? Because when they first sent up the shuttle, the first space shuttle was sent up, they did a, an approximation of how much coding was needed for all of the systems in the shuttle. And they figured out that it took about 22,000 man years. If you took all the different components and all of the different parts and you realize how much coding had to be written, 22,000 man years to write all of the coding in the space shuttle. Okay. Now, anyone here ever see a DNA molecule? Come on, raise your hand. Be honest. Come on, guys. Anybody? 
No, no, you know why you didn't, because really science never saw it either, because best, there's a shadow, a high-powered electron microscope, you can see a shadow, maybe of it, maybe, they're not sure, but that DNA molecule, that double helix, contains all of the coding of the entire human body. Now what that means in plain language is the 100 billion neurons of the brain, the 10 trillion cells of our body, from the pancreas to the liver, to the hormone system, to the neurotransmitters, everything, everything is coded within a DNA molecule that if you multiply by 100,000 times, you cannot see with the naked human eye. Who wrote the code? And when you study the vastness, the sophistication, the wonder of this world, and you begin to understand that the more man studies, the deeper it becomes, what you quickly see, it is the most unanswerable kasha in the world. How can you believe anything other than it's the Yad Hashem? It's a creator. And that tells us the Rishonim is exactly what a person should be doing. Looking at the vastness, the sophistication, the wonders of this world, and a person should have this unending sense of love for Hashem. And you see the wisdom, when you see the beauty of this world, says the Rambam, you'll come to a taiva leidas Hashem, a desire, a passion to know Hashem. Ultimately, that is a major function of the mitzvah of Pesach. But again, what it requires is time, study, and focus to do it. Again, we'll have the next Shmuz be Mr. Shem. After Pesach, if anyone's interested, the series on Makas, I, I really highly recommend it. I don't want to make a plug for it during the Shmuz, but it, it is a very recommended series if you want to go through the Makas and see what it's like. Have a good day in Pesach. If anyone has any questions, please feel free to come over. And ask. Is the next Shmuz? Yeah. The next Shmuz is April 26th. 8.30. <laughs> I better write it down. Thank you. <laughs> April 26th, 8.30. <laughs> Don't forget. Anyone has questions?